Father, we pray that the words of that prayer will be the desire of our hearts. That you would fill us with your spirit and teach us anew what it means to be your people, your children. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Out of all of the, uh, well, there are many things I'm sure that we are wrestling with related to living in this pandemic. There are many things about our lives that have been disrupted and changed and, and we find very difficult to deal with. I suspect that uh, some of the difficult things that we're wrestling with is that we are not able to come together for life celebrations. You know, I, there, are, there are births that are happening without family present. There are birthday parties taking place remotely as people watch on a, on a phone or a computer. There are graduations that have been uh, altered and changed, and, and uh, they're, they're just not the same as we were hoping they would be. And I think one of the reasons why it's such a difficult thing for us to, to not be able to celebrate together is because we are such relational beings. There is something about engaging in celebration with other people that makes the celebration so much more significant. And I think God understands that because he created us as relational beings. And God understands the value and the significance and the importance of our celebrations. Which is why when the people of Israel are being, have been called out of Egypt and they're being established to, about being God's people in his place, he gives them some specific times when they are to come together and celebrate. In Exodus 23, uh, we find these descriptions. Each year you must celebrate three festivals in my honor, says the Lord. First, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. This is the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Second, celebrate the festival of harvest when you bring me the first crops of your harvest. And finally, celebrate the festival of the final harvest. We typically think about these festivals as the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of of uh, weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and these feasts have a, a different kind of, pr of purpose for them, but they are all intended to be times when the people come together in Jerusalem at the temple and they worship God. The Feast of, as uh, Exodus tells us, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about the Passover. It's about the, God's rescue of the people from Egypt. The Feast of Tabernacles is about celebrating the end of the harvest and by do, and doing that by living in little like lean-tos, little booths that the people live in to remind them of how God took care of them the 40 years of living in tent-like structures in the wilderness. And the Feast of Weeks, or as it came to be known as the Feast of Pentecost, is 50 days after the Feast of Passover. And it is a celebration, not of the end of the harvest, but of the beginning of the harvest. It's a celebration of the first fruits. And in Leviticus 23, we have a longer description of this. 
And the verses 15 and 16 say, From the day after the Sabbath, the day you bring the bundle of grain to be lifted up as a special offering, count off seven full weeks. Keep counting until the day after the seventh Sabbath, 50 days later. Then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. And this festival became known as Pentecost because the, it, Pentecost is the Greek word for 50. And so it became these 50 days that they celebrated. And, and Pentecost is a day, the Feast of Weeks is a time when they come together and they give thanks to God for the first fruits of the harvest. It also became connected to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai because that took place 50 days after they came out of Egypt. And this, this sense of, of the law and the first fruits, these gifts of God, celebrate the abundance of God and the blessings of God. And they are also not just a celebration of what God has done, but they are a celebration of faith about what God is going to do. Because it's one thing to celebrate, have this great celebration because of the first harvest, when you don't know if things are going to work out to celebrate the last harvest. And the celebration of the first harvest and, and the coming of sacrifices and bringing to God from the first fruits is an act of faith and trust that the God who provided that first harvest is going to continue to bless them to the very end of the harvest season. It is a, it is a feast that is greatly and deeply connected to the land where Israel will live. I don't know if you've noticed this when you read through the Old Testament, but God is very interested in the land. When you read the story of the Exodus and Moses going to the people of Israel and saying, God has sent me to, to come and, re and be the means of rescuing you, he only gives them one promise. He says, there's one thing God is promising you, and this is what's going to draw you out of the land of Egypt. It's that God is going to bring you in to a land. God's going to bring you into a land that is more bountiful and more abundant and bigger and greater than you could ever dream or imagine. That's the one promise he gives them. I'm going to bring you into the land. It's the promise that God makes to Abraham. Abraham is a wanderer, a nomad throughout that land of Canaan. He doesn't own one single clod of dirt. He's not allowed to. Nomads aren't allowed to own land in, that, in Canaan. He doesn't own anything there. And yet God says to him, one day your descendants are going to inherit all of this. And God now comes back to them and says, it's time. And I'm going to bring you into the lands. And, this, and the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, is the celebration of the gift of God to his people of the land. It's a feast of abundance, of blessing, of generosity. And it reminds them, they come and they celebrate the fact that God is not stingy with them. He is abundant and generous with them. But what we find when we read the scripture is that God is not generous toward his people just so they can hoard it. He is always generous toward his people so they can be generous toward others. What often gets them and us into trouble is that we receive all of God's blessings and we sit back and say, wow, this is so awesome, God is so great, God has blessed me so much, and we don't think a thing about being channels of that blessing. 
But that's the intent. That's the reason God blesses them is so that they can be the means of blessing other people. This God of abundance and and grace and mercy keeps blessing and blessing and blessing. And when you you read the story in Acts chapter 2 of the day of, of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, it's the day of Pentecost. They are celebrating Pentecost when, when that comes upon them. And I've asked myself the question, why, do they, why are they celebrating Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes? Why does God pick that day? Why is it that God picks that particular celebration instead of one of the others? Well, I mean, pragmatically speaking, it's a day when all these people are in Jerusalem. Acts tells us that there are people there from all over the world speaking all kinds of different languages. And they are representative of Jews all over the place as they've been scattered. And they're now all together hearing this word and they're going to go out and and share it. But it's more than that. It's also a sense in which God comes in the Holy Spirit and it is a reminder to us that when God sends his spirit, he doesn't send him sparingly. He sends him abundantly. I am fascinated by the fact that when Peter preaches the sermon after the Holy Spirit comes on them and Peter Peter stands up and he preaches the sermon, he quotes the prophet Joel and he says, the day is coming when I will pour out my spirit upon you. You notice the words he uses, the verb, I will pour out my spirit upon you. It's not a trickle of the spirit. It's not, well, let me give you a little bit and see how you do. It is a pouring out. And I have in my mind Niagara Falls. You know, 75,000 gallons of water a second pouring over those rocks. Because that's the kind of God he is. He's a God of abundance. And when the Holy Spirit comes and fills them, they are filled abundantly. They are filled to overflowing And you read through the stories of God and his people and it is continually abundance and blessing and generosity. And the spirit comes to us on this day when the church is born in a spirit of generosity and abundance. And the problem is too often we don't see it that way. Because you see, when we refuse or when we are hesitant, To be people who are generous with what God has given us, we send the clear message that we don't really believe God is as generous and abundant as he says he is. What is it that causes us to to not want to be generous with the ways in which God has been generous to us? It's because we're afraid that that generosity is going to run out. And so instead of a mindset of generosity, we, we live in a mindset of scarcity. And scarcity is rooted in fear. Scarcity is rooted in, in, in an image of God that is not the image that God himself has given us. That's why I think the, the Feast of Weeks, even more so than the feast at the end of the harvest, is so, is so vital. Because it's, it's one thing to have a feast when you've, reaped all the harvest, and you see right in front of you how abundant God has been to you. 
Well, of course we're going to celebrate. We've, we've got it all. We, we've seen that God has been good. The harvest has been awesome. So now we can celebrate. It's a whole other thing at the beginning of that. When you haven't seen all of that yet, to have that kind of celebration and to be generous and giving and have a mindset of not fear that God won't be enough, but certainty that God is always more than enough. Haddon Robinson, one of my, my preaching professors, used to tell us that if you read a passage and you come across something that doesn't seem to fit, you look at it and you go, why in the world is that there? There's a good chance that it's probably the key to the passage. That I've thought about that a lot. And I've thought about that in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 talks to us about this, this celebration of this festival and this feast. And when you get to the end of this section in verse 22, he, after talking about how there's a sacrifice and celebrate, he says, sort of out of nowhere, when, the harvest, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. You see what God is doing for them. Is he saying, if you really believe I am the God who I say I am, then you won't hoard everything you possibly can. You will be generous. You'll be abundantly generous. And I'm convinced that one of our problems individually and corporately is that we are always being tempted to scarcity instead of generosity. There's something in the back of our minds that wonders, will God continue to be abundantly generous? And I'm not sure, so I better hedge my bets. And that means I can't be leaving stuff for other people. I've got to gather everything I possibly can. And the very fact that the the people do not glean to the edges of their fields, that they leave that for people who don't have a field to harvest... Is a, is a clear indication that they truly do believe that God is abundant and blesses and that he can be trusted to take care of their needs. And you and I need to live in that mindset. I don't think it's just about wealth and possessions either. I don't think it's just about the, what we own and what we have, that we're generous with that, I think it's bigger than that. I think it's deeper than that. I think it, it, it's wider than that. I think it encompasses all of life. And the question that we need to be asking ourselves that I ask myself is, am I generous not just with what I have, but am I generous with my gifts? Am I generous with my time? Am I generous with my energy? Am I generous with my patience? Am I generous with my love? Am I generous with my forgiveness? Am I generous in my attitude toward people? Do I give them the benefit of the doubt? Or is my first response typically suspicion? Here's what I've come to discover. It's pretty hard to compartmentalize generosity. 
I mean, I think we think that we can, and maybe to some degree we, it looks like we can. But I come to, I've come to the realization that we are either generous or we're not. We either trust God or we don't trust God. We either believe that God is who he says he is or we don't. It's, it's pretty difficult to be generous uh, with something, some things we have and hoard other things that we have. Because what will eventually happen is the hoarding will take over everything. And the real test of our generosity might be not just what we possess, but our attitudes and our spirits toward other people. When the stewardship committee of our church was, was uh, organ, thinking about what's the purpose for this committee? Why, why do we exist? What, what are, what is, what's our goal and our purpose here? We came to the realization that we wanted to be a group of people that helped the church create an atmosphere of generosity. And, if, and by the decisions that we made and the way that we, that we encouraged the church to, to use whatever it is that we have, we would create a spirit of generosity in this church instead of a spirit of scarcity. And that's something that we want to continue to do, not just with money, but with everything. And that's why every year in our budget, we want to give away 18, 20% of whatever it is we take in, and often more than that. Because we want to create a spirit of generosity corporately as we create a spirit of generosity individually. And I am convinced that when you read, when you read the, the book of Acts and the coming of the Holy Spirit into their lives, that there, it is impossible for them to be filled with the Spirit, to have the Spirit poured out upon them and to fill them and to do all the work of the Spirit in them. It's impossible for the Spirit to truly reign in their lives and for the disciples not to be generous. And so that's why you read on in the end of chapter 2 and chapter 4 that they shared everything they had in common. And I don't think that just means money. And you find, uh, you know, them sharing Christ with people, sharing out of the abundance of their faith because that's what the Spirit does when the Spirit lives in us because that's who God is. And we are created and we are God's children to be avenues and channels of blessing and abundance and generosity. And you know, when you read a story like the book of Acts, of this, this sort of phenomenal event of, you know, flames, tongues of flames on people's heads and speaking in languages that they don't know but other people can understand, and you, and you see this the wind blowing and, and all of these things taking place, you think, oh, this is connected to an extraordinary kind of moment. And the Holy Spirit in us is an extraordinary kind of thing. And there is a sense in which it is. That's true. But then I go back to the fact that, that the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples not in the season, not on the day of Passover, not of unleavened bread, but of Pentecost. And I don't think God does anything coincidentally. And you think about it, if if the Holy Spirit had come on Passover, 
then that event would have been connected to their rescue from Egypt. And it would have been this event that they would connect with one momentary, glorious, extraordinary act of God. But because the Spirit comes on the Feast of Weeks and Pentecost, it's not connected with a one-time extraordinary event of God, it is rather connected with a rather common, mundane, year after year after year after year event. And I think there is something in that about the way the Spirit works in us to create this atmosphere in us that reflects the image of God. It's not just in the moment. It's not just in the extraordinary moments. It's in every moment. It's in the common and the mundane. And I I would, in fact, I, I would dare to say that the most profound witness of our lives is more apt to take place in the common, everyday, mundane things of life than in the extraordinary moments that we prepare for and that we are ready for and that we, we can manipulate to some degree to make sure we do the right things. As opposed to the common, the everyday, the mundane that just reveals kind of the nature of who we are. And we need both to some degree But maybe the most profound witness is in the common, in the everyday. In how we we live with people and how we respond to people. And maybe we see that in, in the moments that are least expected. One of my prayers for us as the church, not just our church, but the whole church, is that when the dust settles from the circumstances that we're in and we're back to normal, whatever normal will be, that people will step back and when they think about the church, they will say, wow, what a witness they had. Uh, What I saw in them was different from what I saw in everyone else. I, I kept seeing... Uh, I kept seeing self-sacrifice. I kept seeing self-giving. I kept seeing generosity. I kept seeing patience. I kept seeing thinking about others more than themselves. And, and that, that makes me want to think a little bit more about what it means to be a believer. And that's my prayer for my life, and it's my prayer for your life, the prayer for the church. That, that we, this is an opportunity for us in, in this difficult time to be people who bear witness to the generosity and the abundance of God in us. But you know, we often think about the purpose, our purpose as being mission. And it certainly is mission to some degree, but it seems to me that the real purpose of being the church is about presence that leads to mission. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says to his disciples, now, I want you to stay here until the Holy Spirit comes on you. And when my presence is on you, then I will send you out into mission. I think one of the issues we wrestle with is that we become so enamored with mission, and it's often for good reasons, 
that we do that without the presence. We do that without, without stopping and, and, and desiring the filling of the Spirit and the change the Spirit wants to do in us and the work that the Spirit wants to do in us and the pouring out of the Spirit upon us. But quite frankly, we will, we will fail miserably if our first thought is mission instead of presence. The mission's vital, but it flows out of presence. In Exodus 33, there's a story, well, it's after the golden calf. You know, the, the people make this calf out of gold, and they bow down and worship it and say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt, and, you know, all of these things. And, and Moses has been on the mountain with God, and he comes back, and, of course, Moses is upset, and God is upset. And in chapter 33, God says to Moses, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you into the land. I'm going to give you the land I promised you. I'm going to send angels to, and messengers to go before you and to prepare that land and to make sure that you're established. I'm going to keep my word, but I'm not going to go with you. Because you all have made it clear you don't want me to go with you. And, and so I'm going to make sure you get in the land, but I'm not going. And the people weep and lament. And Moses comes to God and he bows down before him. And Moses makes this interesting statement. He says, God, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. And then he says, if you don't go with us, what will distinguish us from everybody else? What will set us apart from everybody, every other nation around us if you don't go with us? It's your presence with us that makes us who we are. And without your presence, we might inherit a land, but it doesn't mean anything because you're not a part of it. You're not in the center of it. And God says, okay, I'll go with you. And somehow that prayer for us that, God, we want to be agents of blessing and abundance as you've blessed us. But first and foremost, we need you. We need you. We need you to cleanse us. We need you to reshape us. We need you to work in us so that we can be the clearest channel of your abundant blessing possible. Because, Father, the reality is, without you, we will be people who are enamored with scarcity and fear and hoarding instead of abundance and generosity. So change us. Do for us what you did for those disciples. Make us new. That we might be agents of abundance, abundant Blessing and generosity, generosity of what we possess and generosity of our attitudes and generosity of our patience and our forgiveness and our love. Just as you are with us. And not just in the extraordinary moments, but in every moment. Fred Craddock is one of my favorite preachers. And um, I heard him tell once, say one time, that when we give our lives to Christ, 
we, we think of it sort of as going out in a blaze of glory. You know, we say to ourselves, God, I'll, I'll give my life to you, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll just sort of have this awesome moment of giving it all to you. And he says, it's sort of like we're thinking, God, uh, here's a thousand here's dollar bill. I'm giving you the wealth that I have. Here's a thousand dollar bill. I'm giving it all to, my, all to you, and then I'll just kind of move on. But he says, I have a feeling that rather than it being a $1,000 bill, rather God says to us, I want you to go to the bank and cash in that $1,000 bill for quarters. Get $1,000 worth of quarters. I don't know what, I was thinking of putting that up here, but then I was a little nervous about having $1,000 up here. <laughs> but $1,000 worth of quarters, and you spend the rest of your life giving away those quarters. 25 cents here, 50 cents there. Maybe a dollar here, a dollar there. Paying attention to people that you might rather walk away from. Giving compassion to people that you don't, aren't really sure they deserve it. Being patient with people for the thousandth time. Giving yourself away day by day, moment by moment. Just as God does with us, day by day, moment by moment. I think that's a pretty good image of a life that's filled with the Spirit. And my question for myself and for you is do we want that kind of life? Do we want to receive or ready to receive the blessings of God's Spirit so that in His presence we can be channels of blessing and abundance and generosity to a world that desperately needs Jesus. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us, your abundant blessings. Give us faith. Give us a desire to be filled with your spirit that we might be agents of hope and life and generosity and grace. Through Christ we pray. Amen.